0: Well, good morning, we return to our series, The Good Life, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mound, Jesus' is teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is basically a message from him about what it means to be good, uh, what it means to be a good person and what it means to live a good life, uh, something humans instinctively want to know, need to know. We have a sense, we're born with it, of morality, of, some, of right and wrong. And usually sometime over the course of our life, it doesn't take long before we begin to systematize that, consciously or unconsciously. We come up with a code to measure ourselves against, to determine if we're a good person or not. And uh, usually that falls, it could look a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, it just ends up, look, I do these things, you don't do these things. So it's a laws that we create in our own minds, you know, we codify those things. Uh, And by the way, that's what all religion does. All religion does that. Uh, And there are things that we become, over time, pretty proud of. Sometimes that's really conscious Sometimes we're not very conscious of how proud we are of some of the things that we do. Uh, and then Jesus comes along and he shows us what, God, what life with God is really like. That it's not really about ultimately keeping rules and laws. That it's about knowing him and experiencing him and, and loving him and relating to him. Uh, and then all of a sudden, there's a, there's a kind of love that surpasses these lists I've made and laws that I've tried to live by. Uh, and not even the best system, the best system of law, of religion, could produce the life Jesus is describing here. And so as... One writer I read this week said, Jesus invites us into an unthinkable communion with God. Into his kingdom and into his life. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has made that life available to anyone and everyone. Richard Rohr wrote a book called Jesus Jesus' plan for a new world, I read it during the summer. It was really, really good. I, I liked it on the Sermon on the Mount. He writes, the Gospel's not a competing ideology. This is kind of important. It's not like the gospel came along to try to compete with your system or my system or anyone's system. Uh, So the gospel is not a competing ideology that is threatened by anything outside its pale. It's not one of the so-called ten thousand things. The gospel is that by which we see and evaluate the ten thousand things. It's the light of the world that illumines, and it's the salt of the that gives flavor to a better meal. That's what the gospel is. That's what Jesus is trying to do. And we come now to the end of chapter 5. The end of chapter 5 is important. It wraps up the entire, as we'll see, concludes the whole Matthew 5 and the argument of chapter 5. But it also sets us up very nicely for chapter 6, which you're probably even more familiar with. And I wanted you to just see some of the things that will come up, that come up here at the end of chapter 5, that we'll see in chapter 6. He's going to say to pray in this, chat, in this section. He's going to talk about your Father who is in heaven. He's going to talk about reward. He's going to talk about what you do, what's done more than others. And These are themes that will be picked up. So Jesus isn't going to leave his themes completely, but he's going to continue to describe the kind of life that doesn't live in that system, in that code. But What does life look like? In relationship to me and to God. So um, Jesus has been laying out this life, this unique life, this very, very beautiful life, and he just keeps, you know, blasting our, our, our lists and codes and systems all the way through chapter 5, showing us that love really is the supreme ethic, that law isn't. And he blasts through all of the limits that we would imagine live in our systems, systems in and of themselves have limits. And I, I immediately, I just happened to do this, and I'm just going to share it with you out loud. This would be a thought I normally have out loud, but remember the Wonka-Vader? <laughs> this hit me, okay? And I just think of, and I went back and watched the end of Willy Wonka when they're in the elevator the wonka Vader. And, and uh, who's the actor? Who's the Willie? Yes, Gene Wilder. That beautiful way he describes in that elevator the life that's about to be presented to this kid who he who has who can't even imagine. And he shatters through the glass and rises above it. That's essentially what Jesus is doing, shattering all of our Uh, neatly, you know, beautiful systems that we have and presenting us something so amazing. And when you get to chapter 5, you know, you have been building up. Chapter 5 has been building because Jesus has talked about a righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the religious people. Take your best people, you set a standard, okay, and Jesus says, no, 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 it's way, it's just way beyond that. And chapter 5 takes you to the absolute pinnacle of this love ethic, the supreme uh, ethic of love, and shows us the outer limits. It's as if you finally, as, as close as we've been getting and you anticipate something great, it just, here it goes. It's, I sort of pictured it as, you know, when, when a... When a rocket takes off and you got all that force going behind you, that's how chapter five begins. And all the way through chapter five, you're doing this as you're racing through the atmosphere. Um, And then eventually there's a separation and you can feel it. And then there's, you, you, you leave gravity and then pretty soon you're just floating. And that's where you end up in chapter five. You just are above and beyond it all, more than you could have imagined, life that you would have never imagined. And the love ethic has been obvious through this chapter. We've brought it up many times. But this is the first time now in the section that we're going to look at now that Jesus brings up love, that he actually uses the word. And it's as if the glass shatters, and now you see it, and he brings it up. And so, let's look at it. This is what he says. You have heard that it was said, and by the way, just as a reminder, this is Jesus' way of contrasting the way we systematize what we think the good life is. And it doesn't matter how you heard it. These folks would have heard it from the Old Testament. And you would have gathered some moral information from that. And somehow in your life, you've picked up along the way your own moral. So however you heard what the good life or a good person looks like, at the end of the day, Jesus is going to say, I can add to that. I can change that. I can show you something in that. And there's some way or f- we've messed it up. And Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor which they would have all heard, they would have all thought of Leviticus 19, 18, love your neighbor. This is an Old Testament rule. That's what you would have heard. But when they heard it, here's what happens. When they hear it, the rest of the verse doesn't say, and hate your enemy. This is just what they end up interpreting it to be. They just end up saying, you love your neighbor. But anyone who's not neighborly, you don't have to love. That's how they heard it. And so Jesus expands to try to explain how they looked at this. Now, in verses 38 to 42, we saw a lot of crazy stuff. Turn the other cheek. Give your coat when you're freezing to death. This is your last item. You've given everything else away. You have nothing else to give them. You give them your best thing. You loan to people you have. You know, are never gonna give anything back to you, can't give anything back to you. You go the extra mile for people. Uh, and you think, I mean, we all came out of that going, that's almost ridiculous to love like that. And so you look at the first part of the command and you go, You mean we're supposed to love that way? That's what lo- loving your neighbor means? Wow. There's no limit to loving your neighbor. That's what 38 to 42 told us. Well, then our minds start to think, well, how can we limit that? Well, if we can't limit the what and how we love, maybe we can limit what? Who we love. And when Jesus gets to this point, it's the pinnacle. Because at the end of the day, it's how Jesus feels about people. The love ethic is about people. And so you say, all right, you're already calling us to an impossible standard. Surely you can't love everyone that way. If there's no limit to love's actions, surely there's a limit to who deserves it. And when you get to this place, you have gotten to the ultimate way to expose your religious system. Who's in and who's out. In fact, you'll remember that the Pharisees, if you've read the Gospels, you've heard the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus told that story. And he told that story... To a lawyer, to a legal mind, someone who knew the Old Testament really well. He asked him, Lord, what's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbors yourself. And then that lawyer said what had become an extensive conversation among the religious Who is my neighbor? Why? Because if you tell me I got to love like that, certainly there's some people who don't get it. Who don't deserve that, right? And he tells the story of a guy who gets beat up on the side of the road. And some people literally won't go over there to help them. They've got their reasons why. They will not go to the other side of the road to help them. And what essentially Jesus is saying, is, says, no, no, no. If, you're, if you live in the kingdom, nothing can keep you from going to the other side of the road if you live in the kingdom. If you don't live in the kingdom, you will have some reason not to go to the other side of the road. That's religion. And you'll see how that's true. And the basic instinct of the human heart is to have lists. I have a reason why. He's not on my list of people who deserve love, so I'm not going over there. Uh, that's an instinct of the human heart that some people just, they're not, they're not like us, with us, for us, puts them over there. They don't deserve what we deserve. So we make lists and we set limits. That's what religion does. And Nietzsche even said, it's the greatest instinct of the human heart. So people who live in the kingdom under God's rule, who deserves love in your life, says a lot about you. Uh... And so the question becomes, who's your neighbor and who's your enemies? Now Jesus is forcing that question. That guy asks, who's your neighbor? Which essentially is, well, who's my enemy? And by the way, anybody who lives in the kingdom has to be able to answer these questions the way Jesus would. Who is your enemy? That's going to say a lot about you. Who you deem your neighbor And so an enemy, at the end of the day, as we'll see here, can cover a, a pretty large gamut of people. Your neighbor is going to be somebody, you know, you might think somebody close, somebody friend, somebody like you. Usually you pick a neighborhood of people you want to be like. They're near you. They, it could be somebody in your family, just really close-knit. They're like you. And so an enemy would be someone who's not like you in some way, shape, or form. Morally, politically, socially economically, it could be anything. Just And at the end of the day, we just deem them unworthy. It could be slightly. It could be very serious. It could be a lot of hate and contempt towards somebody. It could be somebody you just act like doesn't exist, all the way to a person who truly causes you harm, as we'll see. And so what ends up happening is you may not, like, do anything to hurt them. But they're on your list out there, and you sort of ignore them. You don't think about them. You might wish evil on them. But at the very least, you just put up with them. And so Jesus is going to say... but here's what I say. And here's the response to this. And at the end of the day, as his followers, we're wanting to know what he says. He says, this is how God thinks about the categories. You should love your enemies too, and actually pray for those who persecute you. And so Jesus sort of creates a a sort of a beginning list of enemies and then maybe puts maybe the worst kind on the list. Somebody who causes you harm. Uh, And so now enemies is plural. So verse 43, it's singular, love your enemy. Because you might have one, you might figure I got at least one enemy I got to love, but in this text, it's enemies. Which is we're going to see we got them in all categories of life. And so the first supernatural kingdom-like instinct for somebody who's trying to be what Jesus is describing here is that you love those people. What doesn't mean to love your enemy, to love and serve. I had to think a lot about this. I would imagine many of us don't have a whole lot of experience with this. I had to sit around and go, I don't really know what that looks like. And just be honest. And I wrestled with it. In fact, I think I've wrestled with this text more than any text that I can remember. And part of it was, I didn't have enough stories in my life. And that said something about me, you know. Yesterday, I uh, got a little help. I read a book. It only took about an hour to read it. On Kendo, uh, uh, it's called Agape Leadership. I got introduced to a guy I wanted to hear about, R.C. Chapman. I'd never heard of him before. Anyway, this book is uh, like biographical. It's not a biography, but it's a bio- biographical snapshots of his life. Because I didn't know about this guy. He, he was born in 1803 in England, and he lived until 1902. He was in ministry for 50 years in England. And he had lots of friends. Like, he, was, he had impact on Hudson Taylor, you know, missionary to China. And he was, like, friends with George Mueller and close friends with Spurgeon. I'm like, I never heard of this guy. Spurgeon called him the saintliest man he had ever known. I go, I got to find out about this cat. You know what you want to know about him right now? And so it turns out he's born in England to a very wealthy family. And uh, he gets introduced to Christ. Through, uh, he becomes a lawyer. He wants to become a lawyer. So in his 20s, you know, he's in school and he's figuring, he figures out what he wants to do. He's very smart um, and becomes a lawyer so can, and meets a lawyer friend who's a believer who he ends up inviting to church and, and he comes to Christ. Well, he ends up giving away his practice, stopped being a lawyer, giving away his wealth. And he, and he moves to a little spot in England and, and begins to serve there as the pastor among the poor. You know, just a whole lot less economically well-off people than he was. And uh, he became known as the apostle of love to all these great men of God that he had an impact on. And you never heard about him. Well, one day he was preaching in the open air, like he would go out into the town, the village, and pray here in England. Uh, and um, Barnstaple, I think, is uh, in England. And so he would preach out in the open air and one of the fellows in town, one of the businessmen in town who was a, uh, you know, owned a grocery store, walked up to him one day. He was just sick of hearing him and spit right in his face. And, uh, you know, he, he took it. And then eventually this guy who was just so put off by this loving man for a year, for one year, just everything he could do to irritate this man, he did it. And R.C. Chapman never did anything but love him. And then one day, it was shown, one of the stories they tell, is that a very uh, a wealthy, a wealthy family member comes to visit him in England, wants to see what he has given up all this wealth and, you know, his legal practice for. And he can't believe where he lives and all this kind of stuff. Well... Chapman tries to explain it to him. But anyway, he says, uh, the guy, as he's leaving, he just says, listen, at least let me buy you a bunch of groceries. You don't seem to have much here. And so Chapman said, that'd be fine, but I got one requirement. I want you to go to a particular grocery store and spend your money. He said, no problem. So he goes into town, goes to that particular grocer, buys all this stuff, goes up to the grocer, tells the grocer that he wants that sent to Chapman's house. This man who's buying this has no idea what's going on between them. And the grocer looks at him and says, you can't possibly, that can't be right. He says, well, no, it's definitely right, he said, because uh, Chapman sent me specifically to this shop. And that grocer took those groceries over there and in tears knocked on his door and gave him his groceries and gave his life to Christ. And it's an incredible story. And I thought, well, that's probably what it looks like if you get the opportunity to serve somebody, you take it. Even if it's somebody who spit in your face. Something like that. And then God says, pray for those who persecute you. This is what I was thinking about. Most of us struggle to pray at all. The fact that an enemy is going to even have... We're not even going to have time to put an enemy on the list. And when you consider the things we pray for... They wouldn't make the list anyway. That said something about me. When you have an enemy, this is, this is a hard thing. This is if you're a kingdom person. By the way, if you're a kingdom person, you've got to think hard about how to live the life Jesus is asking you. It just doesn't, you've got to think hard about how to do it. Like for me, Chapman, that was a great idea, wasn't it? To say, hey, make sure you go to that grocery store and spend your money there. That was just a great idea. Those kind of ideas come to the kingdom heart. They should be coming to a kingdom heart. And sometimes an enemy's not going to let you serve them. Sometimes an enemy who hates you won't take something from you. And all you can do is pray for them. And when you have nothing else that you can actually do for an enemy, God says... At least pray for them. They're in the middle of killing you. You can't do anything for them, but you can at least pray. Wow. I thought we could literally spend the rest of this sermon talking about what it would mean to pray. What it would mean about me, what it would say about me, what would it say about the understanding of my spiritual life if enemies were on my prayer list. Petition God on behalf of them. It would have to mean that I saw even what enemies were doing to me as something of, of over, that God was over, you know. That's not just me out here with my enemies. I can, that I can enlist God into this very painful thing going on in my life? And what kind of dynamic spirituality would it take? Uh, Spurgeon said, prayer is the forerunner of mercy. I read that very earlier, early in the week. And what he was essentially saying is, if you can pray for someone, then you'll be more likely to serve him and love them when the time if they make your prayer list, which it says something about prayer, that as you pray it, you'll become it. And that's why when you get to chapter 6 and the disciples look at Jesus and say, hey, teach us how to pray. When he teaches you how to pray, it's so that you become a kingdom person. You come up with good ideas about how to love people. You're not just limited and stuck into the old ways. You know, always grown up loving that kind of person, always grown up loving to this level only. Come into the kingdom and the glass shatters. You're like, there's a whole universe of potential love out there now available to me that I can give. And prayer is one of the things that takes us out there. This is... Just overwhelming. And you have two illustrations that really come to mind in the New Testament. Stephen, the first martyr, prays while those folks are rocking him to death. And then Jesus himself does it. Jesus himself does it. While they're crucified. He's praying, God, forgive them. That's what it looks like. but he's not finished. You get sort of a why. And this is, this, is, this is Jesus's hope. There's a lot resting on this little bitty word. It's one word, but it means result basically, so that, suggests sort of a process, so that at somehow I am in the process of becoming like my Father who is in heaven. This is what spirituality is. This is what is different than religion. It's a relationship. I, I, I have a whole new identity. I'm related to, you know, the Father in heaven. And now here's just another way in which the Sermon on the Mount suggests that heaven comes down to earth in me. I bring heaven down to here as a child of this father in heaven. So to love him and to be loved by him, I start to want what he wants. And I don't think there's an easier way to describe what it means to live in the kingdom, a better way than to just say, over time, you're not there yet. We're not there yet. But over time, I start to want more of the things that he wants. As opposed to your shoulders dropping and going, I can't love my enemies. I'm not giving away my best coat. I'm not loaning anybody that can't give it it back to me. And I'm not going two miles with anybody. That may be you right now. That's okay. But if underneath that there's not this prayer says, God, I don't want to stay that way. Then you might have to question whether you're in the kingdom and whether you're related to him. It's not a system. It's the, the ethic of the kingdom is based on the character of the father. And you say, well, what kind of character does he have? Well, he makes the sun I love it. You're going to love this. His son is what the text says. He, his son, he lets it rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. There's a number of things going on in this little, this is so packed, it's it reminds me of physics, you know, the density in there and there's, there's tiny little molecular realities to it that are unexplainable. That's like this verse. It's just overwhelming. The New Testament never expresses God as doing these two things anywhere else except for here. And you got the sovereignty issue of that he's over the sun. It's actually his sun that he causes to rise and, 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 and his reign. So you got this sovereignty. God is sovereign. And then you have this impartiality where uh, Jesus says, and he sort of inverts it. Notice it's evil and good. You would expect unjust and just. But he says just and unjust. It's as if to say, it doesn't matter what order you put them in. I treat him the same and I'm impartial when it comes to the sun and the rain. And there's a kind of logic to it. Because wouldn't it be ridiculous if God did it any other way? Wouldn't you look at him out of the corner of your eye if He only gave sun to some people? Can you imagine a God who's His son, so I would imagine He can determine that rays hit you, but not you? And then you're walking around with a glow and everybody would go, well, well God really loves him. then love made glow, and the sun gets to hit him and not me. How come his yard grows? And mine doesn't. How come his is green? Well, God likes him more than you. You know, then you would think people who live in Florida really are loved by God. And Alaskans, oh, no. Bad shape. Uh, there may be some truth to that. I'm not going to go into it right now. Uh, But, uh, you know, in Florida, you can have a sun shower. You get them both. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Rain and sun. It's a beautiful thing. I miss it. Um, And, you know, in Florida, at least because you get these afternoon rains and they're so kind of unique... You could literally be standing on one side of the street and watch it pouring on the other side of the street. And you'd be standing here and there's no rain. And you're like, God doesn't love anybody on this side of the street at all. <laughs> and everybody in the range going. <laughs> Listen, that's what religion does. That's not how God works. And we're getting a window into the kind of God that we have here that even though he could make it rain on just some or the sun shines, it's not how he works. You know, lots of people hate God. God has lots of enemies. And yet this text says he loves and blesses them in countless ways. And all of a sudden you start to see sun and rain as maybe it'll change your view of sun and rain for the rest of your life, that they're they're pictures of God's justice. He's a just God and he's impartial. Sun and rain will remind you that God is impartial. Every time the sun hits your face, every time a drop of water falls out of heaven, to remind you that God is impartial that he loves everybody, that nobody's on the other side of the street he can't get to or won't get to. That's the difference between religion and God. It makes you think to yourself, I wonder how long I lived in my life and I never noticed how many people hate God and yet he blesses them every day. How many people hate God and yet he blesses them every day. And it makes you think, there was a time in my life I received God's blessings, and I didn't like him at all. <laughs> this, is, this is another thing I think that's powerful out of this. God is saying, imitate me. Don't be partial. And here's another thing I think he's saying. Which is a really good word for us. Uh, Do not on my behalf make enemies. God is saying, on my behalf, don't make enemies. How many of us, some of our enemies are because they're enemies of God? You don't stand for what God would stand for, you wouldn't do it the way God would do it. How many, almost all our categories. Or this is what we think of God. And because you don't, you're on the other side of the street. And God would say, don't, I don't need you to protect me. I don't need you to make enemies. I'm telling you I don't treat them like enemies. Don't turn them into enemies for me. I don't need you to do that. We're good at it. We think we have to protect God somehow. Lord have mercy. Lord have mercy. And God understands good and evil. He understands what's just and what, what isn't just. I mean, who better than him to know what's evil and good and what's just and unjust? He will, he'll take care of it at the end of time. He says, I don't need that in your hands. I don't need you making enemies for me. I don't need you taking out revenge for anybody. I don't need you withholding love from anyone. Romans 12, I'll take care of that. Leave that to me. I will do it right. And so you can see there's this huge gap between the way humans love and the way God loves. There's a massive gap and it's shocking. And it turns out we're all the same. No matter how religious we thought we were. And so what does he say in these verses here? And then he gives, just piles it on here. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even tax collectors do that. Whew. This would have really hurt. And if you greet your brothers, you know, people who are like you, nice to you, what more are you doing than others? Even Gentiles do that. This is a profound, another very, very text working at multiple levels. Uh, I mean, of course, the obvious meaning is everybody loves people who are nice and harmless. But you also get this point. Everybody puts limits on love. Even the best among us. And so when we think we're good people by some standard and that we're living a, look, a good life, because we can all show that we, we love some people and, we, and we, are, we acknowledge, this is the idea of acknowledge and recognize some people. And if you do it for even one, you'd think, I'm a pretty good guy. And this is where religion comes in. It makes you feel like you're a good guy. It makes you think you're living a good life and that you're a good person. And Jesus is shattering that and saying, no, you're really not that good. If you limit the who in your life. We're all friendly to friendly people. And see, religion asks two questions, and Jesus brings them up here. If I love anybody, don't I deserve something? I deserve something from God. That's what one question religion asks. Here's the other thing it asks. I do more than others. And it doesn't matter what your list is. You've got, in religion, you have to be better than somebody else. And you have to deserve something. If you deserve something and you've got to be better than somebody else because that's how you prove what you're deserving of, that's religion. Jesus brings up both of those here. Wow, it's just incredible. And he basically answers the question, what reward? None. And then he says, What are you doing more than others? None. Woo! He basically just shattered your entire system. Tax collectors, the morally worst people in the world. Jesus is writing this about the best religious people in the world. And so at once, he's deflating them and putting them on the same level with tax collectors. This is what religion doesn't get is that if you, if you don't love like God does, then you, you, you're just on the same level as the tax collector. He's got a list, too. Tax collectors know who to pat on the back to get what they need. I mean, it's a really dog-eat-dog system. I mean, they have to do that. I mean, it's the kind of system where you gotta, you, you got to scratch somebody's back to get yours scratched. They get that game. They play that game. Well, it turns out the religious people play the same game. It's just a different set of people. But it's the same game. And so as one comment, uh, Broadus wrote this, in loving his friends, a man in a certain way really only loves himself. Because if I only love my friends, I'm getting something out of that. Wow. Uh, it's just a, a, a system. And so then he says, you're not just like the morally disgusting tax collector, the traitor and the cheater. You're also like the Gentile who's like a pagan. And this, this would have racial implications and political implications. You know, you, you, you politically put people over there. You racially put people over there. This is why in the kingdom, none of these can survive racism or They don't live in the kingdom of heart. And historians tell us that the law was never more carefully observed than, than, than in this era right here in Jewish history. Well, if that's the case, he just compared the highest law observation, the greatest religious person, to the lowest and made them equal. Stripped them. Stripped them literally in this verse. Strips. It down your system and strips you of all self-righteousness and basically says to the best people you could find your religion is no better than the heathen religion you are just you're exactly the same this is really important Um, at the same time he exposes them get this He takes away their enemies. See, when your religion gets stripped from you, so does the guy across the street as an enemy. He he disappears. He's no longer an enemy. Religion creates enemies. It has to, because it needs somebody to be better than. So if your heart is creating enemies... then it's operating like a religious heart, not a kingdom heart, because they make you feel better. Prejudice, scapegoating, marginalizing people makes you feel better. The gospel takes enemies away. Your enemy list as a kingdom person should be dropping. Wow. Richard Rohr wrote this. The insecure and false self seems to need an enemy, a scapegoat, so that it can feel superior and saved. Because the gods you serve, whoever they are, whoever you're trying to appease, needs appeasing. God doesn't need appeasing. God doesn't need victims and God doesn't need enemies. The gospel takes them away. The true God needs nothing. Religion needs enemies to feel better. So then you get to verse 48, and, and I mean, it's like, by this time, you're all, you're just, uh, you are. And then he says, this is just sums up the whole chapter summed up here. That therefore is a big one. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This gets right down to the essence of it. You want to know the difference between Christianity and religion. It's about a relationship with God. He is the standard. Not the one you made up in your mind, not the one some religion gave you, nothing. He's limitless. The standard is limitless. And if that's not enough, here's the beauty of this verse. Usually we hear this verse and we go, I can't be perfect. Here's what the invitation is. If you don't read it right, you'll get it wrong. The invitation is, if you love me and you come into relationship with me, it's possible to live like me. That's all God is saying here. Jesus is saying, I'm inviting you into something that is possible. Your heart can become loving. That's the invitation. Christ makes it possible. Without him, you couldn't imagine this life, let alone see it as a possibility. And C.S. Lewis, in Mere Christianity, puts this, I think, the way to end chapter 5 better than anything I could imagine. He writes this. Be perfect. C.S. Lewis says, and he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. This is a great thing. You come into the kingdom, you want to be completely transformed. That's right, baby. You're going to be loving enemies. It's hard. This is what he says it's hard. But the sort of compromise we are all hankering after is harder. You know, like if you don't want to get there, that's harder, he says. In fact, it's impossible. (laughs) Listen to this. It may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. And it would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining in an egg. We are like eggs at present. This is a great image. And you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary, decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. (laughs) That's so remarkable. Let me just... You you know the phrase, he's a good egg. Right? That's got to be where that comes from. It's brilliant. Religion tries to produce this life, but it can't. It's just you just kind of become a good egg. People who come to Christ realize that the harder, the harder thing to do is to stay in the egg. You can't stay in there indefinitely, C. S. Lewis points out. You go bad. You gotta hatch. In other words, if we let him, he can turn us into some glorious creature that reflects his character and his love. That's the invitation. You could stay in the egg and just go on being nice to nice people and decent to decent people in the warm shell where you're protected and it's never cold and never painful and never scary. Jesus is saying, I want to teach you to fly. The God who was kind enough to send his Son and his rain down on you wants to give you so much more than just sun and rain. He wants to transform your heart. So you want to hatch? That's the invitation. You want to hatch? Well, here's what I would say and then I'm going to close. What I had to do is I had to just think, I, I just had to try to think of somebody who right now is on my list of people I don't want to do anything for. But I could. You should do that right now. Whatever that enemy is, says something about you and your heart and that ought to scare you much more. And maybe you can think of a way to either pray or say something or acknowledge them, recognize their existence and think to yourself, maybe God is trying to tell me, Pete, I want you to fly. And right now, you're still in that egg, and I have this person in your life tapping on that shell, calling you out. Fly, Pete. You know what Romans 5 says? Every single one of us were an enemy of God before he came to love us. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. You can't have any. We cannot have any enemies after what God has done for us. If you put anyone in an enemy category, you're immediately putting yourself in that category. Because you were once one. That's what religion does. All right, you just bow your heads. I mean, we gotta get out of this somehow. Somehow we gotta get out of this. Lord, Wait. A whole new perspective, just a completely different way of seeing things in life. And, Father, I just ask for us right now. So maybe there's a person in this room right now who's never given their life to Christ. They're on the outs. And God has blessed you and shown kindness to you. And maybe you're just seeing that for the first time and going, you mean there's more? There is. He could do more for you. He has done more for you. He's given his life for you. challenge you to accept him this morning. And Lord, for the rest of us who are, we're just so quick to make enemies. God, open our hearts. Open our eyes. We want to fly. In Jesus' name, amen.